right, well, today uh, we want to uh, take a look at a, several, different, uh, uh, several different things. One is, I just want to say a comment about uh, where we're at in our Haftorah portions. It's a very interesting place that, um, and I think I might have mentioned this last week or the week before, and that is, um, I, after Shavuot, a little while after Shavuot, uh, there's an, a period of three weeks, and it's three weeks of, uh, really, of lamentation, of mourning, that, that kind of thing, uh, culminating in a, uh, the ninth day of Av, which is called Tisha B'Av, that means the ninth of Av, and uh, that is a day of, uh, that's when the Book of Lamentations, in fact, is read uh, in the synagogue, and lots of lamenting and, and uh, thinking about uh, uh, much of the sadness of Jewish history takes place. And there's a number of uh, associated traditions that go along with that. But after that is over, uh, our uh, eyes uh, turn, our focus is on the High Holy Days. And uh, right after this low day, this day of mourning, the Haftorah portions, that's the passage in the prophets that comes after the Torah portion, okay? They all come from Isaiah beginning in chapter 40. And they're all looking forward, looking forward to the redemption and the servant of the Lord, and, and all those great passages. So it's very interesting that today's Haftorah portion uh, is uh, really something. It uh, contains uh, a messianic prophecy. And a, I mean, if we were to really drill down on it, you'd see it actually contains two messianic prophecies. But that's another story for another day. But the interesting thing is, is that we're familiar, you know, with Isaiah 53. Right, we're all familiar with that. Most of us, anyway. That is like the that is the cornerstone of messianic passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. Right, where very specifically we read about the suffering servant of the Messiah. But actually, in Isaiah chapter forty-two and in chapter forty-nine and in chapter fifty, we also read about this servant. Okay, uh, we read about the call of the servant. We could say the commissioning of the servant. Uh, we read about the career of the servant. And, and, uh, and so it's very interesting because in Isaiah chapter 50, in what we read today, uh, it's very interesting where you read beginning in verse 4 where it says, The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. By morning he awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up against each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near. And it, it goes on. But the point of it is, is that this, this passage, this servant passage, introduces the sufferings of the Messiah, uh, which really are articulated a, a few chapters later. But all these chapters are very much related uh, uh, to one another. 
regarding the servant of the Lord, Yeshua, uh, the servant of the Lord. And so it's very interesting that we read, I mean, every synagogue around the world reads these, this Haftorah today. Uh, and, uh, and, and so whether people realize it or not, it's very, uh, I think, a very comforting and wonderful thing to recognize that as we approach the high holy days, we are reading about the servant of the Lord. We're reading about the suffering servant of the Lord, the one who brings us salvation, the one who is the Yom Kippur offering, the one who makes the way for us to enter in uh, to the Holy of Holies, you know, in a new and living way. Uh, and so hopefully, as we are reading these uh, Haftorah portions, uh, that they are sort of uh, turning over the soil in our hearts and preparing us for uh, the, uh, the Messiah. So, very good. I have actually, uh, and I have them electronically. If you should uh, be so interested, you can just uh, email uh, Karen, and I can provide them some wonderful uh, journal articles on these four different passages in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53 that tie them all together. It's really uh, very, very, uh, very interesting. So we're right in the middle of, of all of that now. That's, that's, that's great. All right, well, today I want us to um, turn to the book of Daniel, and we're going to take a look at uh, some things about the eighth chapter of Daniel, and we're going to tie that into very much our, our living our lives today. And we're also going to tie it into uh, tomorrow uh, here, where we are going to have uh, uh, our immersion uh, celebration, as well as some other wonderful things going on. And we're going to tie that all together. How we will do that isn't, it will be an amazing thing, right? Okay, but, but where there's a will, there's a way. All right. So here, in uh, Daniel, in the eighth chapter, Daniel has another vision. So we need to get like the big picture of, of what's happening in Daniel because I, uh, for us to uh, not have any idea what's going on and then look at this eighth chapter, it will make very little sense to us. So beginning in the seventh chapter, Daniel has a series of visions, dreams, visions. Okay. So in chapter seven, he sees this huge overview of world history. It's really what it is. A huge overview of world history and that at the end, uh, God reigns, the Messiah comes, uh, and enemies are defeated, and the kingdom of God lasts forever. Okay? All right. Uh, in the eighth chapter, what we have is like this, uh, like a, a microscopic view of a portion of that big expanse of world history. Okay? And more detail, therefore, is given to this big expanse of history that we read about. See, it's very interesting how all of the visions played into each other in the book of Daniel. In the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and it is very general, very much general, about four kingdoms, and then God comes and reigns. In the seventh chapter, you read about four kingdoms, and God comes and reigns, but we read more about how he comes and reigns. Now, in the eighth chapter, Daniel has this vision of a couple of these world uh, empires and how evil they are. 
and, uh, and, and the bad things that they do. And what is introduced to us in the eighth chapter is not just that you have empire, evil empire after evil empire after evil empire, empire and then the kingdom of God, but contained within one of these or two of these evil empires is a specific attack on the, on the God of Israel. Now, it's true that you see that with, uh, with all of these kingdoms, but for some particular reason, uh, the focus that Daniel is given has to do with a particular persecution of the Jewish people and a particular desecration of the temple. Okay? And it's to serve a particular purpose for the rest of history, including us here today. All right? So now, in the eighth chapter, the focus is going to be on two of these kingdoms, all right? On what we'll just refer to as the second and third of these kingdoms, one, two, three, and four. The second and third, and third kingdoms, all right? Now, this was written, we believe, certainly, was given to Daniel and written uh, in the fifth century, okay? Uh, or the sixth century around in the 500s, all right? Now, that's important to remember. So I'm going to read the beginning part, and then we're going to jump a little farther down. So it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, uh, Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one that I had previously, that appeared to me previously. Well, that's chapter 7. So I would encourage you on your own time to read the book of Daniel and to read these chapters, okay? So, okay, so, and I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Shushan, Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So you have the ram and you have the goat, okay? Uh, and uh, the ram has two horns, and nobody is challenging it, and, and it's conquering uh, all kinds of land. And then it seems coming from the west, traveling very, very quickly, is uh, this goat with a conspicuous horn between his eyes. All right? Then it says, And he came up to the ram, that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. So you see the goat with the big conspicuous horn rams into the ram, right? Uh, and, the, and the ram is uh, trampled, and the two horns are, uh, are shattered, right? And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. 
Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. So there's a focus here on Eretz Yisrael, this little horn on, uh, on the land of Israel. Then it says, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and will, uh, and will prosper. Okay? All right. Now, uh, so what you see here, to get the big picture, if we're not familiar with it, some of us I know may be, but others may not be. So you have this ram with two horns, just uh, being very powerful and not being challenged. You have then a goat coming from the west with a conspicuous horn, and bam! Right? Uh, the two horns of the ram are shattered. The ram is trampled down. And this goat with, the, with, the, with this horn is just uh, absolutely powerful. But then, right at the, at the apex of power, he uh, dies. And this power in this conspicuous horn is divided up into four, uh, into four powers. Okay? And one of them, without real power, meaning a little horn, okay, not only is uh, you know, doing what world powers often do, and that is uh, take over other, uh, you know, uh, the conquer neighboring territories, but there seems to be a focus on Israel, a focus on Jerusalem. That's called the beautiful land. So now Daniel has this vision, ay, 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 what is all of this about? And so Gabriel, the angel, comes and is going to explain it to him. And we're very fortunate to have a real explanation of this, okay? So now if we go down farther, the first thing that we're going to learn is in verse 17. It says, so he came near where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Okay, time of the end. All right. And so now, uh, let's see, in verse 19, and he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Isn't it a blessing to know that it's right there in the Bible and we don't have to like try to speculate and wonder what that is? That's a real good thing. All right? Okay, so we know from history that the kings of Media and Persia came right after the Babylonians. So that's how we know this is the second of those four kingdoms. Okay? The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, which we know from world history did indeed conquer uh, the Medes and the Persians. Okay? Which, all, by the way, all came after Daniel had this vision. That's important. It's, it, certainly, we can go back in world history and see it. But when it was originally uh, uttered, it was the future. Very important. Okay? 
for several reasons, as we'll see. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king or the predominant king, preeminent king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his uh, uh, power. And then it says, and you'll notice it changes into like a poetic form, and that might be reflected in the way the text of your Bible is written. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. So it seems that you have these, up until this point, okay, so you have this kingdom of Greece and its preeminent king, and then he's, he, is, uh, he dies, the horn is shattered, and four horns come in its place, and so you have these four kingdoms, and then you seem, it seems that in the text that there's, now there's something in, in the future of that, like beyond that, okay? And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and the holy place. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself uh, in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. And he will even oppose the prince of princes. Okay? Uh, and uh, he will, uh, let's see. But he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evening and mornings which had been told is true. But keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Okay? And then Daniel goes on to say how sick he was uh, about this. All right? Now, one of the things, a little bit about coming attractions, in the 11th chapter, we read even more specifics about this. Okay? But we save that for probably months down the road. <laughs> okay? But here in chapter 8, so we see Daniel is given a vision of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. And the preeminent king of the Greeks is Alexander the Great. And we know that at the apex of his power, he died. And his kingdom was divided up between four generals, right? Uh, and what we know, without going into all this history, two of them play a very important role in relationship to the beautiful land. All right? Again, in chapter 11, this comes out very beautifully. Well, I mean, is shown to us very specifically. Uh, and what we learn is, though, that uh, of these four generals, two of their kingdoms, like I said, play this very important role in relationship to Eretz Yisrael. One, uh, you may have heard of them, they're called the Ptolemies, right? It starts with a P, right? Uh, and they're located, uh, you know, in Egypt, basically. And then you have uh, the Seleucids, who were uh, located... Uh, or had found their, their capital or their, their, their main source of power uh, in Syria, okay, in Syria. And so, as is often the case in Bible history, you have Egypt and Syria, or Egypt and then, uh, of a, and then a nation farther east of Syria called Assyria, right? Different, it just sounds the same, right? But Israel is always in the middle. Sometimes, you know, Israel is called the land between, Right between these uh, these empires, but the point for us here is one of the things we learn now about these world empires, one that's stacked up after the other, is is that in this third empire, 
okay? You have a particular, uh, a particular persecution of the Jewish people where one of these four little horns is going to wreak havoc on Jerusalem and is going to desecrate the temple, come against God's people and against the holy place, meaning against God himself, okay? Uh, and uh, that we know from history did indeed uh, take place. Antiochus Epiphanes, the story of Hanukkah, is what is prophesied specifically here ahead of time, right? We don't have time today to go through all the details of that story, but we know that this fourth Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, he did indeed desecrate the temple, uh, and we know from history that it took about three and a half years, and there's a lot of political intrigue that's fascinating that goes along with this inter intra intra-Judean uh, issues, as well as international issues, uh, are all taking place in the providential hand of God. Uh, and we see that there is a victory. The temple is again recovered, but it's not nearly the end of the story, right? One generation later, the, uh, uh, the Judeans, the Jewish people in the land, are uh, already uh, having more spiritual difficulties, and it becomes quite a dark time, and it's all leading up to the coming of a Messiah, okay? The time period of uh, this event that's taking place in the 8th chapter is in, in the 1-6, six, the 60s are always a tumultuous decade, okay? Uh, and so in the 1-60s uh, BC or BCE, uh, you have these events taking place. But yet, we might be saying, but it talks about the time of the end. How is it the time of the end if this took place? And that is a really good question. Because we learn something very valuable here, as well as in other passages. When Daniel is seeing this, he sees, in a sense, the landscape of history. So it's not a case of, sometimes we are so dogmatic in our categorizing these things as there's a fulfillment here and then there's another one later on so there so it's like uh, it's talking about one event but it's taking place twice i would suggest that when daniel sees this he sees in a sense this landscape of history and that is about the time of the end but along the way to the time of the end there is this event in world history that takes place that will serve, in a sense, as a, as a type or a picture or a recurring kind of historical event leading up to this time of the end, okay? Now, what's interesting is we might say, oh, but you're just trying to fit that all in. Well, you know, it's interesting that Yeshua, who lived after this prophecy obviously was given, and after the time, after 165 BCE, right? Obviously, he lived after that. He himself, in the 24th chapter of Daniel, under, of Matthew, the 24th chapter of Matthew, understands this to be speaking of the future when he talks about the abomination of desolation. 
I know a few weeks ago we turned to that passage, so I'm not going to turn again to it today, but you can read it in Matthew chapter 24. But Yeshua speaks of it, and he says, as is written in the prophet Daniel, right? And this abomination of desolation is about the desecration of this temple. But Yeshua understands it as in the future, even though this event with Antiochus Epiphanes already has taken place. Not only that, but turn with me to this passage today, 2 Thessalonians. It's in the Bridchad it's in the New Covenant, okay? It's in the T's, all right? So there was this little community in Thessalonica, which is, I believe, part of Greece, right? It's after Colossians. If you go to like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you'll come to 1 Thessalonians, and then uh, 2 Thessalonians. So there was something going on. Uh, uh, with these people uh, at this time, okay? Uh, let me read the first two verses, and the first two verses will tell us why this is written, and it's kind of interesting. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, what that means is he has heard that someone has communicated with them, even perhaps, uh, even perhaps a forged letter uh, that says it's from Shaul, from Paul, saying that the consummation has already taken place and you missed it. That this day of the Lord has already come. So that's why he says, don't lose your composure. Okay? Don't fall apart here. Don't be disturbed. It hasn't happened yet. You haven't missed it. All right? That's what he's saying to them. All right? Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God uh, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This, what he is describing here, are these visions from the book of Daniel. And so to Paul, he's saying, this hasn't happened yet. Even after Yeshua rose from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father, that, that now, as history is progressing in the the, you know, the formation of the community of the Messiah, the body of Messiah, that this is still going to take place. And he uses a, a word to describe the whole thing, the apostasy. Unless the apostasy comes first. That's his word for these events. Now, when you read uh, rabbinic literature, uh, you read about this as well. You read that before the great day of King Messiah comes, there's going to be this horrible period of time of judgment, of persecution, of idolatry, of all these things. And then will be the great day of King Messiah. See? So this is not just uh, some Bubba Miser, you know, uh, that these guys uh, thought up, right? No, it, it's rooted, it's moored in the Tanakh, in the book of Daniel. And so what he's saying is, this is still going to happen, all right? So don't think that it hasn't, 
or don't be afraid that it hasn't. And in a way, he's saying, don't worry, you'll know. <laughs> you know, you're not going to miss it. But there's something else very important that we want to get out of this passage. Okay? All right. So he says here, uh, now in verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. Verse 7 now. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be uh, saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So he's saying this is going to happen, see, this apostasy. And it's going to actually be a judgment in this world. Okay, And so it's much more cosmic than only what we read about Antiochus Epiphanes. But what Paul is talking about here is when Daniel is referring to the time of the end, to the actual climactic conclusion of all of these things that, that take place, all right? That uh, there will be a judgment in this world and that this one who's going to come will be used by God as an instrument of judgment, okay? Uh, and people will believe what is false. Why? Because they did not believe the truth. That is one reason why it's so important for us to communicate uh, the truth of Yeshua, the Messiah, uh, to our people so that we would have clarity and understand uh, the truth. But then he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Then he says, and it was for this that he called you through our gospel, our good news, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. So then he gives an admonition to them. So he's saying, forget the big picture here, it hasn't happened yet, okay? Don't worry, you haven't missed it, okay? Because when it comes, it'll be this big judgment in the world. But now, in the meantime, you all, stand firm, he's going to say now. Now, in the meantime, he's going to say, walk with the Lord. Make sure that you're, you're uh, listening to the teaching that we've given you and, uh, and, and follow the ways of, of the Lord. So that's why he says now in verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the tradition which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Okay? Uh, and then he's going to pray for them that they have strength and comfort. Right? Uh, and then... Uh, even in the next chapter, if you jump down to verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And then he goes on to say that, you know, they did everything right that they should do, right? Uh, and, uh, and so 
Uh, in verse 13, actually, I guess I'll just keep reading here. That's okay. In uh, verse uh, 10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. But such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Okay. Why does he say that? What does all of this have to do with each other? What, what is all, how does this all tie together? So what he's saying is this, and it's a great lesson for us. They're concerned about the time of the end. They're concerned about it. They're thinking about it. This day of the Lord, this consummation. When, when is it coming? When is it going to be here? Well, haven't you heard that the end is coming maybe next month, right? I, but didn't you hear that maybe last year, the year before, or maybe the year before that, or maybe 1999 or 1988 or 1979? Or, yeah. Woo! Yes. We are very concerned about, oh, when this is going to be, and we better be, you know, uh, we better be uh, uh, buying gold now. Uh, you know, uh, we better be finding uh, places to build the bunkers out in the, out in the middle of nowhere, uh, because this is it. And, you know, the stars and moons are lining up in a certain way. And, 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 and so this is it, you know. Fascinating here that when the disciples in Acts chapter 1 in verse 6 ask Yeshua, when are you going to restore Jerusalem, restore Israel, which is kind of like the same question, he says, I don't know. The Father has fixed this by his own authority, you know. But then he tells them to be occupied until he comes. That beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, you know, into the outermost parts of the world, go and, and uh, make disciples, right? So, you know, here, uh, here, Paul is saying to these people who are so uh, uh, consumed with it, they think they've missed it, right? He says to them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to follow the instructions that we give you, right? I, I want you to make sure that you stay away from undisciplined people that are going in all different kinds of directions. They're not enemies, not enemies, but you want to admonish them as brothers, right? And what I want you to do is to be focused. Now, understand, when he talks about people who are undisciplined, you know, I, it's very interesting how he describes himself as disciplined, right? He says in verse, uh, verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to anyone, right? Follow our example, he goes on to say. If anyone will not work, let him not eat, right? And basically he goes on to say, uh, exhort in the Lord Yeshua to work a quiet, uh, work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. In other words, what he is saying, go on with your lives in a disciplined fashion, doing the things you're supposed to do. Go to work. Don't be a schnorrer, if you know what that means, right? Go to work. Uh, take care of your family, you know, uh, uh, be a good citizen, do the right things, 
right? Uh, and follow our example and our teaching. Well, when you translate that the, to these centuries, follow their example and their teaching, that's in the Bible, right? So be in the word of God, be faithful to God, uh, and uh, uh, do the things you're supposed to do in life, right? Be a good testimony. And of course, along with that is when being a good testimony is sharing the message of Yeshua. But don't go off the deep end, okay? Don't become undisciplined in understanding our teaching or in the way you live, you see? And so when you tie that into Daniel, because that's what he's talking about here, the events of uh, uh, Daniel uh, chapter 8, we are called to be aware of these things. Yes, we are called to be aware of the time of the end, right? And we see from this picture of what's in, of the uh, Persian and the, um, uh, the Greek empire uh, that the desecration of the temple and coming against not only the, the, the people of the land, but also against God himself. This is a type or a picture that is going to repeat itself and have a climactic fulfillment. All right? And Paul is saying to them, yes, you see, this is coming in the future. And God is going to send a delusion that people are going to believe what is false. All the more reason to believe what is right and to, and to believe what is right uh, from uh, the word of God. Now, how do we do that in the best way? Paul is writing to a community of believers. He's not writing to Mr. Thessalonica, right? He's writing to a community of people together, uh, and, and he wants them to be godly in their endeavors and in the way they carry themselves. So, turn with me now to another passage, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is here talking to another group about some other issues, okay? And here he's talking to believers in Corinth, not terribly far from Thessalonica, by the way. Uh, and he's talking to them about unity, about how, what they need to be, how they need to get along together in, this, in the, the spiritual community of faith. Okay? Oh, all right. He says at the beginning, Now concerning spiritual gifts or spiritualities, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray uh, to the dumb idols. Isn't that great? I mean, what is he really trying to say? Right? To the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Yeshua is accursed, and no one can say Yeshua is Lord except by the Ruach HaKodesh. Okay? Now, in verse 4, 5, and 6, this whole passage is about unity. That's, the whole, that's what it is about. Unfortunately, we usually miss that part. Okay? He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay? Now, the point is, you'll see, if you keep reading, you're going to read the word same and Spirit over and over and over again. And that's his point. His point is not, you don't look at this passage and say, oh, Here's a list of spiritual gifts. That's not the point. You're missing the point. The point is, is that there is one spirit, one ruach who binds us all together. 
And in him, functioning together, we are a whole. That's his point. All right? So when you come down to verse uh, 12, okay? For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Messiah. For by one spirit we were all immersed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. But the body is not one member, but many. And then he goes on to use this metaphor of body parts and how we need all the, all the body parts, right? And then he's going to, after he does that, later on down, he's going to say how there should be no division in the body, but rather the members should have the same care for one another. And then he says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Messiah's body and individual members of it. Okay, why am I reading this? I'm reading this because what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about, about don't be so focused on whether you, you know, the consummation, but right now live in such a manner that you are orderly and conducting your life well in the Lord, that in order to do that, we need each other. In order to do that, we need each other. That is what is so valuable about the community of Messiah followers. We are never, ever called to be lone rangers. And it is oftentimes the lone rangers who are so obsessed with the end is coming. Now, the end is always coming, okay? No doubt about it. Daniel, the end of the age is coming. Yeshua said the end of the age is coming. And God places in every Messiah follower this sense that history is not going to go on forever, right? So there is this sense within us that there is this the end is coming. There is this imminency. Yet at the very same time, Paul admonishes these people to live your lives in a normative kind of way. And that is what being spiritual is. Being filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, functioning in such a way that we're ministering to one another spiritually and emotionally. After all, he's talking about different types of of ways that we manifest the presence of the Spirit of God in each other's lives. And then it says in the very same passage that if we're hurting, we hurt, we all hurt together. So emotionally, socially, spiritually, we, we share this life with each other. And this life among Messiah followers has one thing in common, and that is the Ruach HaKodesh, the same Spirit. What binds us together is not we're not a club. We're not a, uh, we're not a social organization, right? Although we're human beings, so there is a social element to it. But what binds us together is the same spirit of God. And we minister to one another. And we need that in order to live a disciplined life together in this world as we move forward and we testify of who the Messiah is. Because as Daniel shows us in the story of Antiochus Epiphanes, and as Paul says very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the spirit of lawlessness is already here. And so that means that us as a spiritual community, we need each other to be able to get through this 
life of rebellion against God. This culture that is in rebellion against God. Paul calls it a spirit of lawlessness. We have that today. Certainly there is a spirit of lawlessness that abounds. And not only a, you know, of, of hedonism, uh, of, of doing whatever you want to do and whatever the culture dictates, that's what's good and right, as opposed to what the scripture teaches. And so we are constantly under attack. And so that is what, again, he is saying to these people, Paul is saying to these people in 2 Thessalonians, that, look, you haven't missed it. Live this normative life today, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, and in order to do that, we do so in unity together. And so he uses a term, in closing here, he uses a term in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, we have all been immersed into one body, okay? Uh, and so what that means is, is that the Spirit of God, see, who, the one who unifies us is the Spirit of God. It's not just like the same doctrinal statement, you know what I mean? Or it's the same, or, or we like Shabbat, uh, or uh, we're, we're all this, or we're all that, or we have this in common or that in common. No, what binds us together is the Ruach HaKodesh, the same spirit. And this spirit has placed us in the community of believers. Okay, Just as we are immersed in an invisible way into Yeshua himself, so in a very physical way, we are immersed into the living community of believers. And so when we're immersed physically, like in the water, we're saying where we identify with Yeshua, we're immersed in him, and we also identify with this community. See, that's why we always do that publicly, because we're identifying with this community, okay? This community that, that uh, is filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, uh, by definition, okay? Uh, and, and so uh, when, we, when we look at uh, the world around us, and we look and we read, uh, you know, these passages in the book of Daniel about, uh, persecution and the end and it's, and it's coming. Yes, it is. And we need to be aware of it. And we need to be, just like Paul says, we need to be not just looking forward or looking to see this particular man of lawlessness, but the spirit of lawlessness, which is already here. And for our own safety, safety, we need one another and we need to dwell within the community of faith. And, uh, we can be thankful that God, uh, you know, through the coming of the Messiah, poured out the Ruach HaKodesh. And so when we embrace Yeshua, the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. And that, uh, is our, that is the sign of knowing Messiah, the inward Ruach HaKodesh. And being part of that community of Messiah followers is a very physical manifestation of the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh. That is what he's trying to say. And, uh, and so for us, let us press on in this world, as we see uh, all kinds of lawlessness abound, may we find safety in the community of Messiah followers as we encourage each other and speak into each other's lives and we're in the, the Word of God. And believe me, we won't miss it when it comes. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, God, that you have given us clarity and that we can understand the future. Thank you, Lord, that you have not sent us any kind of delusion, uh, Lord, but that you have sent us the truth in Messiah Yeshua. 
Lord, we do pray, God, that as we uh, continue our, our walk of faith, that we stand firm in the Word and that we uh, seek to live a life that can be looked upon in such a way where people might become jealous and say, I want that kind of life and come to embrace Yeshua and have the Ruach HaKodesh and therefore organically be tied together to the body of Messiah, the visible body of Messiah. Lord, thank you, God, that uh, tomorrow we, we have an opportunity to come together as a community, as people are immersed and physically identify with the community of Messiah followers, especially in these days, Lord. And uh, uh, God, may we not live our lives in fear, in fear of what, you know, what, what happens in the world. But Lord, uh, may we uh, truly recognize that perfect love of you casts out fear. And Lord, may we indeed recognize, God, that, uh, that we are safe in the community of Messiah followers. And God, may we be a testimony of that to the world indeed around us. And Lord, we do pray, God, indeed, that Yeshua would return, Lord, and that uh, we would indeed experience a new heaven, a new earth, and new bodies. And we pray in Yeshua's name.